One of the lines of that hymn is that we would see Jehovah's beauty to admire, is what we sing, and that is what we do here this morning. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Luke chapter 8? Luke chapter 8, verses 26 to 39. This is found on page 1100 of your Pew Bibles. Here we admire, examine the beauty of Jehovah declared through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the image of the Father. And he presents a beautiful image here. Last week we saw in the, the, the narrative of the storm the power of the Lord. And I said last Sunday evening how this chapter in particular, at least to me, but I would hope to all, would declare the glory of the Lord in a profound way. It's, it's almost something of like a highlight reel of the power of Jesus Christ. And that continues here. There's no loss of it. So before we read, I want to remind us of that narrative of what has just happened. Jesus showed amazing power in calming the storm, and then we move to a different storm that he calms. Before we read this text, let's pray. Lord God in heaven, as we seek to come before your word, we seek to admire your beauty, to admire your power as revealed in Jesus Christ, and so to be heartened and comforted by it, as well as to praise your name, and also to be instructed according to the kingdom and what you have done in your work and what that means to us. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 8, beginning in verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This ends the reading of this amazing text in Scripture. May God bless it to our life. People of God, our world is fascinated with the supernatural. 
And you might think, well, is it really? Isn't, isn't it rather naturalistic? Doesn't it seek an explanation in science in every way? Doesn't it deny the existence of the supernatural? Well, perhaps in theory, but you need to look no further than our entertainment in almost every way, and what you will find there is a fascination with supernatural, or to put it in the more common terms, superheroes. Superpowers. Perhaps, boys and girls, you are those who love reading about superheroes and their powers, and you love the stories, and you love watching the movies, you love thinking of them and reading the books. Even our books contain these, whether they're their comic books or just novels and fantasy books that describe magic or other abilities. We're fascinated with the supernatural and superheroes. Well, what would happen if we were to meet one in real life? What would we do? And that's what we find in this text. That's what we've been seeing in this chapter, in this wonderful portrayal of Jesus and his identity as it's one thing after another that Jesus exercises authority and power in front of his disciples, in front of the regions to show who he is, to show that he is indeed the one and only true superhero. The one who has truly exercised that power and and should only really be described as the the only superman who has ever lived, who comes with this authority and power. What's amazing about this story is that it's true, it isn't fake. It doesn't come to us from fantasy stories. It's not on our TVs. We don't watch it and see them running around in their costumes and know this is all fabrication of, of imagination. This happened. This superhero, the supernatural man walked the earth. Truly man and truly God. We saw that last time. We saw how it displayed in the, in the storm, in the calming of the storm, Jesus' humanity, his deity, and we see his power and authority here over a different realm. Not just the realm of nature, but we could almost say of a more volatile realm. Of, of, of a realm that shows even more, perhaps, his kingdom and power, the spiritual realm, over not just, shall we say, for nature, inanimate objects, but rather beings who possess power. Beings who possess such power that you and I, that mere man, can't stand against them. We don't have this power. Why is this text even included? Why do we read of Jesus' authority over the demons? Well, we read this and know this, and this is our theme for the message. Jesus' authority over, over demons reveals the kingdom through his identity, his purpose, and his result. Jesus' authority over demons reveals the kingdom through his identity, his purpose, and his result. And those are our points, looking at his identity and our first point, his purpose in coming in our second, and the result that his coming brings in the third. You would, if you would, you don't need to turn, but theoretically, if you were to turn back to the beginning of Luke, you would have read in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, the reason Luke writes this gospel. I draw attention to it again. He says, Luke tells Theophilus that he's writing that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. And so over the whole gospel of Luke is this purpose statement. This is to provide Theophilus and by extension all of God's people certainty to what you've been taught. Certainty that Jesus is the, the supernatural man who has come, that the kingdom has indeed come, that these things really did happen. And so I hope that as we go through this, you would as well find in your own faith a certainty 
an assurance of who Jesus is, and especially, and this is most important, not just who Jesus is, who he is to you, who he is to you personally, because this story does affect you. It doesn't just stand out there with no connection to you personally. The same Lord who exercises this power is your personal Lord. The same Lord who exercises this salvation and authority is your own authority and shows this much care to each of us, his people. We see this in Jesus' identity. We can see Jesus' identity first in the demon's reaction. The disciples had asked in the previous narrative, who then is this that the winds and the seas obey? And and who should answer it but an unlikely group? The demons. They begin to provide an answer to Jesus' identity. They begin to, to clarify even more that will extend into the next chapter of Luke to show us beyond a shadow of a doubt who Jesus really is and, and to give a precise answer. Well, we'll set it up. The, the, the narrative of the storm had just happened. Jesus is sailing to the country of the Gerasenes, Luke tells us. This is opposite Galilee. Why is this important to know? This means that Jesus has left what was the normal borders of the promised land and has entered what is a Gentile land. And this should be significant to us. His his ministry was not just confined to, to Israel, but rather we see a foretaste of what his kingdom would go, where it would go and what it would do. And so he goes to this Gentile region. And that becomes apparent just as he exits this boat, you've, you've entered a different realm. What do we mean by that? Well, there's this terrifying figure, this demoniac, this demon-possessed man. And the closest living things is a herd of pigs that is unclean in Israel. And this demoniac is living among tombs and, and death and, and corpses were unclean in Israel. And so the narrative is projecting this. He's, and he's left the promised land and he's entered this Gentile realm. And, and look what's going on. Is If any place needs the kingdom of God and the king to come, it's this. There are powers here that shouldn't be trifled with, that the community couldn't trifle with. There was needs here that needed to be dealt with. Jesus steps into this Gentile land. And describes the degree of this man's possession. Just, just think of this. This happened. There was this man who had worn no clothes in these however many years it was. He wasn't living in a home but the tombs. He had been seized by these demons. Every kind of restraint, chains and shackles, this man would break. But it wasn't the power of this man. It was the demons inside him. They had so taken him over. Now, now just picture this. Put, put yourself in this context. What if you were to go down Corning Road and, and there's the cemetery? And what if we knew that there was a man who lived there who was unclothed, who had all this power, who was a, a terror to the, to the surrounding community? You wouldn't just drive by there. You wouldn't just look and, and, and look at the beautiful day. You would see this man roaming. You would see this man and the terror that he would provide. And if you live near them, you can better believe. What would parents say? Don't go near there. Stay away. There's that crazed, dangerous person. A threat to the community. You can see they tried to, to, to secure him. They tried to contain him, and they couldn't. With bare hands, he broke metal, shackles, and chains. This man's identity had been so taken away from him. We don't even have a true name. Rather, his identity is demonic. 
His own voice is gone. He doesn't speak for himself. It is literally the demons that speak through him. He has lost his very life. He is a receptacle and a body for the forces of evil and a legion of them at that. That's the name that they give. When Jesus asked him his name, he says legion, for many demons had entered him. A legion was a figure, a large number, several thousands at least. It's incredible. And by the sheer number that the text shows of the herds of pigs that they entered and rushed into the water, you see that the text is trying to highlight that this man was full of demons. Losing his very identity. But do you see how the demons react? Jesus steps on the land. And when they see him, they're, they're drawn to him. Sort of like a disobedient child who, who just knows the presence of the parent. And doesn't want to, but, but walks up, comes up to them and falls down before them. They, they know they're wrong. They know they've been disobedient. Or in the, in the case of the demons, they know the one who has stepped on the shore is ultimately their authority. See, the demons' own reaction shows something truly tremendous. A community couldn't contain this man with the strongest forces that we have in metal and shackles, and Jesus needs none of that. He comes before him and sprawls himself before Jesus Christ. Jesus commands and he answers. They were begging him not to send them into the abyss. This means that they knew full well that Jesus, the Son of God, who they just declared him to be, what have you to do with me? They know he, at his word, could send them into the abyss for all eternity. And what does that mean? What are we talking about there? It would be the place where they're held. It would be the place that they would await judgment and torment. It would be the place where they wouldn't be allowed to roam free And they know Jesus has all power to send them there, and they're terrified. Demons don't react that way to man, to normal man. I want to read a text in which we see the counterpart of this, in which you would see if someone were to go up to this demon-possessed man who wasn't in Christ, who, who wasn't Christ and commanded the same, what would happen? Acts 19, verses 13 through 16, illustrates this. This is later in the book of Acts, as the church is being spread, as the apostles are driving out demons. There were those of the Jews who sought to to claim that power as their own, to, in the name of Jesus, send them out. But they did not know Jesus. And we read this. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit, and I preface the singularity of that, one day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them, and gave them such a beating they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. That is what a single demon man did. They didn't have the authority or the power. They didn't even have the derivative authority that Paul and the apostles did to drive them out. You see, demons and demon possession isn't just trifled with. These are true and real powers. Powers that just a man and a normal person cannot command. 
And so you better believe that those who see what's happening are in shock and awe at what Jesus performs here. We see Jesus' identity clearly. What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? They know exactly who he is, and this causes them to tremble in utter fear. This is your Savior. This is your King. Jesus had shown his authority over nature, as we saw last time. Jesus shows his authority over the spiritual world here. He has power in every realm, and his kingdom, and this is important, his kingdom does not just affect the natural world. It affects all of what God has made, the spiritual world as well as the physical. And look at our commander-in-chief go out. He needs no army. Jesus doesn't need legions of angels to come. That's what we sometimes think. You know, we sometimes think that the devil and all his might and power is, is sort of in this deadlock battle with God. Who will gain the upper hand? And, and we can sort of think, oh, maybe God will squeak out a victory. That's what's going to happen. He'll just squeak it out. That's not the case. That's never been the case. Our God, our Savior, exerts and always has exerted full power and authority over this realm that would otherwise terrorize us. And that's important that we know, too. This realm, this spiritual realm, and these forces are frightening. Boys and girls, you should be scared of this man when you would read this text. You would be scared of him if it weren't for the fact that you have Jesus as your Lord. That these forces don't ultimately have control over you because you're part of a different kingdom. These forces still afflict us. They still roam in the world today. They can affect us, and we have to fight against them, but they cannot take possession of us, nor do they have the upper hand, nor are they left with free reign to do whatever they will at their whims, and, and that we're stuck at their whims. We are not. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world, and as the church goes out, the church is not just a vehicle that might squeak by past such forces. We are a fortress in Jesus Christ whose gates cannot be overcome or even overwhelmed at all the forces of hell itself. This is what we see in, in the identity of Jesus. He's the, the powerful king. This is what we see in the nature of the kingdom that he sets up. Who is this Jesus? He's the son of the Most High. Yeah, you also see in this text, he's the sower, which came earlier in Luke chapter 8. That parable that described what happens to the soils as the word of God in its seed comes into the soils while Jesus here is sowing. And we'll see that later, but I want to represent that here too. This isn't an isolated thing Jesus is doing. He's setting up his kingdom. He's showing his power over spiritual realm. He's sowing seeds in this Gentile land. That is Jesus' Identity. Now let's see Jesus' purpose. Jesus' purpose. I want to go back a little earlier in Luke again. That's because this text in Luke, we've read it several times as we've gone through Luke, but I want to draw it to our attention. It's very important. It's Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 30. This was the narrative where Jesus is in Nazareth in his hometown, and he preaches there. The reason this is instructive for all of Luke is that it encapsulates the purpose of Jesus' ministry itself. It is a little model, a little paradigm of what he would preach and what he would do. 
His purpose, in essence, and that's what we're asking. And he had, he had said in Luke at the beginning of his ministry, Luke takes this out of the chronological uh, extension of it, how it would have gone, and places it earlier in Jesus' life to highlight what Jesus' purpose was. And it was this. He reads the passage from Isaiah. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and said, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. That's Jesus' purpose. Do we see in this man a perfect representation of one who's bound, blind, imprisoned, and poor? We see that in this man. I don't think you could provide a better example of one. Because he's not just like in a worldly prison. He's not actually physically blind. His blindness is worse. He sees with the forces of pure evil. And as I said already, he's lost his very identity. This poor soul has nothing going for it. And yet Jesus comes and sows a seed there. This passage is proclaiming in a stark way what is true of all God's people. What do we mean by that? You know, we, we could say, yes, but, but even when we were saved, we, we were not demon-possessed. There was not a legion of demons within us, granted. Yet the same power that saved this man was just as needed to save each of us as it was to save him. The same authority and power would be needed to save God's people and every soul amongst them as it is to save this man. And this man is set up in Scripture as a prime example for each of us of what Jesus saves us from. An example that, that's so great given to us that we could see this is the fallen man. You can't find a better depiction of it. And Jesus will save such as him, such as us. This good news of deliverance is showing that the kingdom of God extends even to this Gentile land. It will, and it extends to the people who need it most. This is not who you'd expect Jesus to go and, and present the word of God to. This would have been the most unlikely person to receive the gospel in our thinking. And yet, when you read the purpose of Jesus' coming, you start to change and think, actually, this is the man most likely to receive Jesus' Preaching the one so poor, so lost, so in need. That's all of us. We all need that, and we gain it through him. It's very interesting that the story occurs in the other Gospels. In each of them, Jesus crosses the sea. He calms the storm. He lands on this, this Gentile region. He heals this man. He sends the demons out, and then departs and goes back. He went all this way. The, the disciples had to go through a, a life-threatening storm, healing one man and leaving. Jesus doesn't have wasted energy or wasted effort. This was exactly the will of the Lord. This was exactly his will. This was his plan to do this to the most unlikely and the most needed. This is the purpose for what Jesus has done. He has come to proclaim deliverance. The kingdom of God has come to those who need it, to the poor, to the afflicted, to the spiritually oppressed, 
and he saves them. This is our Savior. And this was the purpose that Jesus would come and defeat Satan's kingdom as well. The purpose of Jesus to come was to defeat Satan's kingdom, but how does he do that? Is it not interesting that these demons are quaking in fear at what he could do to them, and that's not what he does? Right? Why, why not? Why, why wouldn't Jesus have just said, depart into the abyss, go? It's because it wasn't that time yet. It's because the breaking in of the kingdom wasn't to be that Jesus would come there and just bind the oppression. No, the purpose of the kingdom is that it would come and through the preaching of the word and the Holy Spirit's use in it, change the hearts of men. The judgment hasn't come yet. That wasn't the purpose of Jesus' first coming. Maybe to show it in various places in seed form, the coming judgment. But his grand purpose was not yet to bind the oppression and the oppressors. And so he does. He, he doesn't send them into the abyss. He grants their request to go to the pigs. His purpose in setting up the kingdom, in defeating Satan itself, is that man's salvation. And it's our salvation. That's the purpose and the victory of the kingdom of God as it extends out saving the souls of his people before the judgment would come, before the abyss is threatened. There is the purpose. And the demons understand this. What does this mean for us personally as well? Even in our service in the church, sometimes we can, we can be afraid of these forces. Sometimes you can be afraid even if, if you do a great work and someone praises you for it and you think, no, don't praise me. I, I don't want to be even brought on the radar of spiritual forces. I don't want to be opposed. I don't want to face demons. I don't want to have them afflict me. Well, this text shows us that in our service to the Lord, though we will, in fact, face these powers and have a spiritual battle to fight and face them in that way, we don't need to be afraid of them and afraid of that. It provides to us assurance that even when God uses us, that the forces of evil will not overwhelm, overwhelm those who are working for God and his glory. Let me put it in the context of this text. This demon-possessed man, once, once freed in his right, man, right mind and saved, and who goes out to proclaim what God has done, he has, ne- he, he has no fear that he will be possessed again. He has no fear that the legion that afflicted him could take his identity nor thwart the work of the kingdom of God. And that's the same for us. No fear of these things because the purpose of the kingdom is greater than the purpose of the devil. And this gives us certainty. So we've seen Jesus' identity, we've seen his purpose, but what about the results? What's the results of this text? We see three of them. We see the result that is brought to the demons. We see the result that's brought to the community. And we see the result on this demon-possessed man who was freed. First, we look at the demons. This brings us into the strange matter of the pigs. There's a lot that could be said here that I'm not going to say because most of it is speculation. Most of it is wondering, what does all this mean? And I'll just give you an idea of what the type of questions are. There are scholars who will say, why did the demons want to go into the pigs? Can they only sort of exist or exert their influence on, on animate objects and living beings so they have to be sent to the pigs? Is that why 
Some will say, no, the demons asked to be sent to the pigs so that they could destroy the pigs and, and sort of bring the whole community against Jesus. That Often the practice at that time would have been a community would pool their herds together. It would have been watched. It would have been a significant financial uh, safety for the community as well as food-wise. And so to see these destroyed, this would have been quite a blow to the community. Is that what's going on here? Others will say, and I think there's, there's some truth, I think, to this one, that perhaps this merely is, is a foretaste and depicts the coming judgment, that these demons, these demons drive these pigs wild and they ultimately go into the, the waters and perish to show their perhaps where they will truly end up. Maybe that's what's going on here. Ultimately, it's, it's, it's difficult to say. Ultimately, it's, it's not easy to answer just why did the demons ask this. But what is important is to know that Jesus had the authority to do it. It's important to understand that Jesus had that greater authority than they did, that he commanded them, that they obeyed and listened to him. And that's what we see in, in this result, that whatever their, the speculative answer may be, Jesus exerts power over the spiritual realm. And his result is to control them. So that's the first result. What about the second result, the city's response? And this is it's really amazing. The response of the city, the herdsmen have seen it. They saw what happened. And so they go and tell the community. The reason I am a bit skeptical about, well, the demons were, were bringing the community against him through this financial loss, I, I'm a bit skeptical about that because it's not mentioned. Rather, what's mentioned by the community is an anger that you've destroyed our herds of pigs. It's utter fear of this man. It's utter fear of Jesus and his power of what he's done. And the text even says that, that they were afraid when they saw the man clothed in his right man mind. Now, isn't that ironic? Boys and girls, if you were to drive on the road and pass the cemetery that we spoke of and, and were to see this crazed man running around without clothes who was very strong and powerful, that would be pretty frightening and terrifying. Would you be afraid if you were to drive down the road and, and saw someone who's dressed normally, behaving normal in his right mind? Isn't that ironic? Isn't that weird that... They weren't as afraid of the man crazed with the legion of demons, and yet they are afraid because they see the man in full control of himself. They see the man's identity return, and this causes them to fear. Why? Because they've come into contact with a supernatural presence. They've come into contact with a man who is truly a superhero, a superpower, who has authority and what does the community do? Do they roll out the red carpet, give him a fancy name, give him kind of a corny-looking outfit, call him a superhero? No. The, the supernatural is cool in our imagination, but when you see a man before you who is truly a superpower, you're terrified. They don't ask him to stay. And isn't that interesting as well? Here's a man who freed their community of a demonic presence, has brought someone in their right mind. Everything he's done has been good and helpful. And they tell Jesus, depart from us. Get away. Don't stay here. The world is more comfortable with Satan's presence than it is with God's. 
they were better suited. We could put it this way. They, they liked it better to have a legion of demons in their community than the Son of God in their midst. And isn't that the nature of the world itself? Isn't that why we need a Savior? The kingdom spreads, but you know what? The kingdom does not spread through argumentation, nor does the kingdom spread through convincing someone to believe. What greater proof could you give to a community than what Jesus did? And they don't respond in faith, they respond in further avoidance. You cannot become part of the kingdom of God through merely seeing, through merely encountering a good proof. No, what actually has to happen, what would have to happen to that community is the same power exerted on this demon-possessed man needs to free them. They see him in his right mind, and he's now the only one in the land who's in his right mind. He's the only one who sees the Son of God for who he is, and rather an entire community have no right mind, and they send away the only one who could save them. Jesus would have to exert his power to transform their hearts that they would be saved. And that is the only way the result of the kingdom is growth and spreads. the power of God. It's the power of his word. It's the power of the spirit to transform life. It's the exact same power that Jesus did to this demoniac. It's not harder for Jesus to do what he did for him than what it is for him to do to us. The same gospel, the same truth, the same power. We've all been touched by it when we believe. It's amazing truth. The city's response is being seized with terror. We see here the sower. Jesus sows here one seed. The word of God goes to this one soil, I should say. This one soil. The word that went to the community, at least at this point, was the seed to be trampled underfoot and, and taken away by the devil itself, as we saw. But there's one plot of soil that receives the seed of the word of God and produces a hundredfold in fruit. And that's the result we see in this good news that is brought to this demon-possessed man himself. That's our final result to what Jesus has done. This man, this unnamed man, and yet an extraordinary witness for all that Jesus has done. There are three requests in the passage. Three requests. The demons say, don't send us into the abyss, instead send us into the pigs, and Jesus grants it. The city says, don't stay here, depart from us, and Jesus grants it. And the, this formerly demon-possessed man who's now in his right mind makes the best request you could. He begs to go with Jesus. And Jesus denies it. He doesn't grant it. And again, we would say, Jesus, what are you doing? This man surely needs you. This man surely should be the one to go with you now. Don't, don't send him away. But the result that Jesus' kingdom brings is for those who have been transformed to go out and be kingdom workers themselves. You see, Jesus leaves him there because Jesus isn't done with the region. Though he's going to leave. Jesus physically will depart, but he's left now a representative there. And what an amazing representative. He denies his request and says, give him other orders. Go back home and declare to all what God has done for you. What a testimony. This man was a living, breathing, walking witness to the glory of God. But are we anything else? Are we any different? 
No doubt this man, purposefully in God's revelation and his plan, provides an extraordinary witness. It's a stark example of what God does, but, but this is done for each of us. We overcomplicate the result the kingdom brings into our life. And we think the result it brings to us means that, that we have to go out and we have to do evangelism in a particular way. We need to argue. We need to have full theological retention and understanding. We need to be apologists, each of us in our own right. None of that's wrong. In fact, all of that should be pursued. But we overcomplicate it and we think we cannot do that. We don't have all the answers. And the reason that's incorrect is we think we need to argue someone into the kingdom. But that's not it. We need to witness to the glory of God. The, the, the true purpose of evangelism, the true result that we're to do in response to the coming kingdom is to go out and to declare what God has done for you. Your story, your witness. And your witness is itself amazing. What has God done for me? Let me tell you about the difficulties and weaknesses in my life that God fixed, that God strengthens, that God's with me in. Let me tell you about the work that God's doing for me right now. Let me tell you that I was one, and this is true of all of us, even if we never knew a day outside the covenant of God, that we were ones to be in, in Adam destined for hell, in the domain of Satan, and rather transformed and rescued to be in the kingdom of God and to the kingdom of heaven. Declare how much God has done for you. And think of that in your own life. The kingdom brings results in your life as well. It's all around you. Declare it. Live it and know it. God is not inactive. Jesus, through his Spirit, is operating just as much now as he ever was. We are all living, breathing examples of that. The kingdom has come. What's the purpose of all of this? Jesus says in Luke 11.20, in Luke 11, verse 20, But if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. There's the proof. By the finger of God, by Jesus' own finger, he cast out demons, and so the kingdom of God has come upon us, and people of God, in faith, you belong. In faith, you are kingdom workers. In faith, you are just like this man that Jesus leaves. Ultimately, Jesus is going to do the same thing to his own disciples. Ultimately, he's going to depart and say, stay behind, go to your communities, go out into the world, and declare how much God has done. And the kingdom has spread through that truth and continues and will continue until the Lord comes back and does finally bring that judgment and does finally bind all of the demons that exist and Satan himself. But the kingdom has stayed. Who is this Jesus? He's the one at whose names a legion of demons tremble. The one whom they even uphold and confess is the Son of the Most High God. He's the one who has come to preach good news of deliverance to the poor in spirit. He's the one that brings salvation, but also division. He's the one that so transforms his people's lives that the world is terrified when they see it. This is who Jesus is. And this is who we are in him. Praise the Lord. Amen. Let's pray.
Lord, we see your power and the power of your kingdom. We are amazed at your authority. We are amazed at what you've done to the greatest forces, at least from our standpoint, that exist. Forces that, were it not for your presence, we would flee from. Forces that we would not be able to fight against, and yet only in your power, only in your name, and with wisdom we know we stand, because you protect and preserve. That all we need to do to stand against the devil is to turn to you in prayer and ask that you would protect us, that you would be near to us, and that you would exert your will and power to spread your kingdom, to protect your people, and to bring into your fold all those you call to yourself, just like this brother of ours who we we may not know yet, but hear his story, this demon-possessed man who depicts what's true of each of us. Salvation by your power and grace. We thank you for this, and we ask, Lord, that we would always serve you, and the result that your kingdom brings would be true in us. We ask this in your great name. Amen.